Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Namaste, my friends. This is Alec Vishal Rubin here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Have you ever felt like you can't learn how to meditate? or your mind is going haywire and can't seem to slow down? Today's episode on Yoga Revealed, we are blessed to share an hour of valuable conversation with dedicated Vedic meditation teacher, Yashoda. In my experience, the Vedic meditation practice that Yashoda offers has been incredibly accessible and relatable to the constructs of my mind. At the end of the day, what we want to learn is that all answers are within us. All knowledge is structured within consciousness, is sitting there waiting for us to connect more and more so that it goes from inside and it starts to seep out into the outside, into our world. That's the practice that we want, stabilization and integration. Tune in to the beauty and the effortlessness that comes with Vedic meditation with Yashoda. Hear her story of how she went from a chaotic, fast-moving lifestyle to a practice of deep mindfulness in daily bliss on today's episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Namaste and welcome to Yoga Revealed podcast. It is a beautiful blue skied sunny day here in Boulder, Colorado. And it is such a blessing for me to introduce Yashoda Devi Ma, a beautiful woman and teacher here in Boulder who had taught me meditation, Vedic meditation, a year ago. And if I may say, the, the my entry point into the yoga practice was purely through an asana and then philosophies begin to interest me and it took quite a while but perfectly on time for meditation to reveal itself to me and Yashoda when I sat down with her a little over a year ago she put some cards on the table and really showed me how accessible and how doable and how um, relatable the tools of meditation can be 
And she really demystified the whole meditation practice from the start for me. So I, at this point, I've been sitting every day for over a year, and I bow my head in such gratitude to you, Yashoda. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home and sharing with us the fine little bits of meditation that have um, lightened and brightened your light up, your life up. Mm, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> to uh, bring meditation to you and to as many people uh, that are open and ready. I think the key ingredient is always when you're ready. I like to always say, and I think most of my colleagues and myself that teach Vedic meditation, whenever we do an intro talk, we universally always say, those that are sitting in the room are already ready. Whether mm. they know it or not, they're ready. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Mm. Nice. So we'd like to start the podcast off with just a little synopsis of who you are. And for those who do not know who you are, know what Vedic meditation is. Could you give us the synopsis? And I know a little bit of your background back to LA and then that Mm -hmm. whole fitness story and then what took you to India and then what brought you to Boulder as um, one of the Vedic teachers here? Sure. Uh, it's been quite a long journey, (laughs) right? I guess the whole, my whole life. Um, yeah, let's go back. I started off in fitness. I worked in fitness for 13 years in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. I worked with everybody from celebrities to producers, to writers, to chiropractors, to doctors and uh, physical therapists. Um, I was an athlete my whole life, so body was my teacher. It was the way that I understood everything, and uh, it was, yeah, it was my whole journey. So when I lived in Los Angeles, I worked with people one-on-one, and I also worked um, with groups, but mainly one-on-one. And I studied psychology, and I studied English in university, uh, which I always had this profound, deep-rooted passion for wanting to master the mind, Mm. for um, healing, and for transformation. And so for me, it was really easy to go into body and start working with people with body. And what I found in Los Angeles as I was going through my journey in my early 20s was, you know, the first thing for human beings is body. This is how we learn everything. We nourish our body. Um, we breathe. Everything is the connection through the body, the, the anakosha, right? And so we start from that level. And what I found as I was going through working with people was that I could transform body. I could get people ready for movies, mm-hmm. for photo shoots. <laughs> I could get them to look perfect, or as perfect as we think that we are, right? Hmm. But what I found was that I couldn't, and I, I want to use the words very lightly, I couldn't correct certain things, the mistaken intellect, or I couldn't correct somebody who, they had a nice body, but they would have eating issues or self-hatred when it came to eating. Mm. Um, I could teach them how to eat well. I could teach them how to lose weight. I could teach them how to 
you know, take away the water retention so it didn't show up in photo shoots and all of those things. Um, but I couldn't help them with their emotions and I couldn't help them on the deep level of mental patterns. And I found that quite frustrating when I was working with people. Um, what I also found with movement, movement and talking and working with people was that I could heal people's bodies through, um, somatically, essentially. Um, and then my journey myself. So I was finding these things as I was going along in my twenties, but I didn't quite have the terminology. I didn't quite have the background yet. And so what I found for myself was the same thing. I could get my body to look good. I had the life that looked good. I could date the right person and that looked good. I could travel the world. I could go on amazing trips, uh, all kinds of different things. But what wasn't working, what was, what was not working was what I felt on the inside. Hmm. And I would be extreme. I would go out, serve the world, be with people, and then I couldn't take it anymore. And I would become a super reclusive for weeks and then step away. And that constant tug or pull really got to me by probably my mid-20s, 25. found it very frustrating. I found my mind to be defeating me. Um, I knew that I wanted to take things to the next level, and I didn't know how. And there was a huge block. I kept running into this block of, okay, I know how to make myself eat well, and I know how to make myself work out and get a nice body and I can manifest, really manifest really well, but I can't get to the next level. And I didn't know what that was. Um, I had had yoga introduced to me when I was 19 and I would do yoga here and there with Brian Kest, who's amazing. Um, anyone who ever took his classes, it's such a privilege to have been around him. So that was my introduction into, um, to yoga being in LA, having the best of the best. And I would go for a month and I would start to feel good and then I would bag it. <laughs> and I would go back. I was very, I think, attached to my suffering, which I think we all have this extreme addiction to our suffering as if it's part of our process, like it's okay to suffer. Um, I was extremely spiritual. I grew up Catholic, raised in a very Catholic family, went to Catholic school um, in the beginning years had a mother who was, she still is very Catholic and which is great. Um, and that was my introduction to spirituality. And I was that child in high school who went to church on my own, um, who very much found prayer to be one of the most powerful experiences. Mm. Um, I traveled to Israel in my early 20s, experiencing what that was like to walk the path that Jesus walked, to go to Bethlehem, to go to Jerusalem, to go to the Wailing Wall, um, all of these profound experiences. So I was attracted to this depth but I, that I wasn't quite finding. What I found um, on another level, when I would go to church, um, was I was attracted to the priests who always left. <laughs> they, they wanted to find love. They wanted to find love and they wanted to experience a householder's life. People who fall in love, they have marriage, they have children, and they still wanted to speak about God. Mm. And they wanted to speak about the depth of the soul. 
And so what I found during my journey of these things with fitness, with body, with my mind attacking me, um, and me hitting this huge wall, right, right around 25, um, I would go hiking, I loved nature, I would do all of these things. I did therapy, everybody in LA has a therapist. I did gestalt, which was amazing because it's all about the now. Now in retrospect, it was the most perfect training ever. Mm. Um, I, I did everything and I wasn't really moving. And so one day I was at a laundromat, met this guy, Light Watkins, um, who is now a very well-known Vedic meditation teacher and probably one of the best in all of the U.S., met him and he was a yoga teacher in town, very well known, wasn't teaching meditation yet. And we exchanged information. He would send me newsletters that I would throw in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, late. <laughs> and I would just kind of ignore them for a good year, a good year. I had a good year of waking up at 25 and then really sabotaging myself for a good year, doing everything that wasn't good for me everything um, that didn't resonate with my soul. Big resistance, lots of resistance. Um, and one of them being that resisting what he had to say in those things. And then one day came along and I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take my mind. Um, my mind, the constant thoughts, the repetition of the thoughts, waking up every day and dealing with the same thoughts, um, the same relationships, dating the same person but with a different face. It was always a joke with my friends that I would date somebody for three days, three weeks, or three months, and then I would get bored. And it just wasn't serving me. It wasn't fun. At the end of the day, it wasn't fun. And so, I found myself laying on the couch one day in LA watching like Entourage <laughs> and I thought, okay, just get up, get off the couch. Went and looked at the internet, saw this um, newsletter from Light and he was talking about his guru, his guru Tom Knowles who taught Vedic meditation and how amazing he was and how much the practice had really transformed his life and revolutionized his life and that his guru would be in town. And it just happened to be so that his guru was going to be in town doing an introduction talk to meditation two hours from the moment that I was looking at um, the newsletter. And in LA, we come up with every excuse possible, you know, traffic, parking, where is it at, all of these things. So instantly I went into judgment. Oh my God, he's doing it at an apartment. Who does it at an apartment? Um, you know, all these little things to resist oh, not going. So I went back to the couch, was lying down, <laughs> thought, okay, really this intro talk is two miles away. It's still in West Hollywood. I have time to go. I have nothing to do. I'm going to go. And I went. I went and there was about 70 people lined up outside to see him talk. And in this neighborhood um, towards Laurel Canyon. And again, I judged everyone there standing on the outside. Like, who are these people? What am I doing here? Blah, blah, blah. Anything resisting. A lot of resistance. Finally connected to some guy that I did my vinyasa flow classes with. So we connected. We went in. 70 of us packed into this tiny little one-bedroom, beautiful apartment. And we all sat down and we started listening to Tom Knowles talk. And it was amazing. 
It was exactly what I had been looking for. It wasn't something that somebody had made up that they were trying to get famous off of. It wasn't just somebody leading a meditation where you were dependent upon them to be able to do the meditation. It was a science. It was a science that he spoke about from, um, from the perspective of the brain. Um, he talked about neuroscience. He talked about the neuroplasty of the brain. He talked about the physiology and the psychophysiology, what needed to happen within the body, the healing of the body that takes place, the unstressing of the body, um, and that the practice itself and the technique had already been formed. It had been formed by an Indian master that he had studied with for 40 years named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And that... If I were to do this course, that it would take four days, um, four days, and it would be broken down into a science for me to be able to do. And I thought at the time, thank God, because I tried CDs, I read books, I had gone to you know group meditations that were sound healings or breath work. I'd done all of these things, and they were all beautiful experiences, but I didn't have something that I could do at home. I did kundalini, just, just things that I wouldn't do on a regular basis. But I loved if I had a teacher facilitating, right? Because we can be lazy, essentially, in the beginning. And so this sounded amazing. I was like, great, this is, you work with mantra. You have a personal sound and vibration that you receive from the teacher. And then the teacher teaches you how to use the mantra, which is essential. And so... I thought it was a bit crazy um, because the structure of it was to go to the intro talk and then you start the very next day. And that's a lot. It's a lot to take in when it's something new. It's expensive. So it was a big sacrifice for me to come up with my donation course. It was pretty much all the money I had set on the side. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is meditation. But I thought on the other perspective I was like what am I doing there's nothing (laughs) that's working like I can't figure out how to move forward I can't figure out how to leap out of where I am and let's just do this and I just thought I'm freaked out if I give all of my money how am I going to have my car payment how am I going to pay my rent all of these things I was 26 so I was just and I was living in LA so basically living at the edge with my money and I just thought whatever uh do it and I just leaped I gave the donation which was like the lowest of them all which was still a lot (laughs) and I did it I did the course and within the first day second day I was having profound experiences I was meditating I was meditating twice a day not only that I was meditating twice a day meditating twice a day for 20 minutes each which clinically technically from my therapist she had said that I had ADD and I thought of course well everyone has ADD when you don't know what you're doing in life and you don't know where to veer your energy everyone has ADD I didn't know where to put my energy. Anyway, Mm. needless to say, I was one of those people that said, I can't meditate, I can't sit down, I can't sit still, nothing works for me, unless it's fitness, Mm. right? And that's what calmed me. So I I was amazed. I was sitting, I was sitting twice a day, and because I was somebody who was disciplined by nature, I was always an athlete, 
um, I knew if I had something and I had a structure that wasn't rigid, but it was a structure that I could implement through my own. I had some freedom. I could fit it into my own schedule. It didn't, I didn't have to wake up at seven in the morning. I didn't have to do it at four in the afternoon. I could do it twice a day, but when it worked for me. And because it had structure, but it had freedom in it, my soul thrived. And I thought, game on. So I did it. I gave myself a year. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this for a year. I did the course. It was amazing. It blew my mind. I learned how to use mantra in an effortless way. I was sitting twice a day. I was understanding how the body was healing and releasing things from the cellular system. Um, so basically somatically healing without having to do anything, which I thought I was in awe of. Finally, I can sit back and observe my healing and not have to do anything. Hmm. I thought that was cool, <laughs> essentially. And so I gave myself a year. I thought, I'll do this for a year. I'll go to the knowledge meetings and the group, um, the group meditations whenever my teacher was in town, which was every six weeks. Once you do the course and you pay, you can take the course over and over for a lifetime, as many times as you like. And so I thought... Every time Tom Knowles comes into town, I'm taking it over. I'm going to sit the three days. And I did. I just followed him wherever he was in town, whether it was Santa Monica or West Hollywood or wherever. And I sat in his course in the front, taking notes, taking the course over and over and over. And because there's a structure to the entire thing, that's the intro of it. I did it for a year, hardly ever missed, was in awe of what was healing within my mind, um, it's, I, I like to always say prior to that year, having been really like ADD, I would maybe read, uh, three, four books a year in all honesty. And it had to be like nutrition or biology or exercise physiology. Um, it had to pertain to my work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that first year of meditation, I read 60 books and I'm not embellishing. I read 60 books. So the fierceness of being calm enough having the focus, I was being able to have that one pointed focus and I just was ready. I was just feeding myself everything from psychology to self-help to self-care to spiritual cleansing and juicing and all of these different types of things, Um, how to bring, how to work with the body on a more spiritual level. And so then I was going in and working with my clients on this level and still finding that I had a block with being able to transform people at a certain level. Um, But finding myself healing was quantum leaping, Hmm. quantum leaping in a way that I couldn't really actually understand. Um, My teacher had told me if I were to do my practice twice a day, every day, for um, one year, I'd do 730 meditations, which I thought, wow, that's amazing because I was doing zero meditations prior to. (laughs) So a year goes by, 730 meditations. Another year goes by. He says, in five to seven years, if you were to do consistent meditation twice a day, every day, the 730 times each year, in five to seven years, you have the possibility of absolutely unstressing your entire physiology and psychophysiology. Everything prior to when you started your meditation practice. Everything prior to, you have the, the opportunity to release. 
any traumas, any karma, mm. any sort of body pain, mm. any sort of limiting, inhibiting mental patterns um, on a physical level, anything that had hurt you prior to that wasn't fully healed was releasing if you were to just simply sit. And I thought, okay, again, game on. <laughs> I'll do this. And because I was witnessing and observing, um, I just found it amazing to watch. Mm. Um, so I watched this healing process for the next couple years. It took a good three years for everything to really start to come through. By the fourth year, which in Vedic terms we would say Turiya. Turiya, the fourth year, the four is the breaking of the symmetry. So, and I find it interesting that the fourth year is when everything shifted. And it might have been the fact that I was turning 30 and my Saturn was returning and all of these massive things. Um, and my life just took a 180 turn, um, completely in a different direction. I started following um, essentially what nature wanted and not what I wanted. Mm. So it was more, rather than human will, it was divine will. Very good. Um, and so I was just going from this perspective of really workshopping life, mm. taking what does faith mean? Like literally, like let's make these words come alive rather than reading about it, rather than intellectualizing it. What, what do these things mean? And I just started playing with it in life on, on crazy levels. I would, you know, I gave up my apartment. I started giving up all my things. I started downsizing. I was at a place where I thought, okay, I've always looked good. I've always paid my bills on time. I've always had all these things. I don't really care. I'm going to give everything up. And if I don't have a house to live, I'll just like surf on somebody's couch surf, you know. And I just felt like letting go. Letting go and really surrendering. And what I found in that year was that the universe, I started paying attention to the universe and what mm. the universe was bringing me. At the time, I... Um, I had done reality TV. <laughs> um, I was in commercial acting, all of these things, which were beautiful processes for me to get over fears, to be vulnerable, to be deeply uncomfortable. Hmm. But it wasn't my dharma. It mm. wasn't my path to be doing commercials. It wasn't my path to be um, in, in uh, reality TV. Um, but it was all served its purpose in this healing process. And so I would workshop these things. What I started noticing was I would go to commercial um, auditions and my callbacks would all be for mommy callbacks. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I so don't relate to being a mother. And I didn't like it, actually. I really defied it and resisted it. Because in my life, what I wanted was to be a career woman and be single. I never wanted to be married. I didn't want any of these things. This householder life wasn't really my, it wasn't appealing to me. Um, I just wanted to be out in the world doing things. And so I started witnessing that. And I started witnessing, um, like I said, testing faith. I had given notice for my apartment and I didn't know where I was going to move. And I thought, okay, 
I'm really good at manifesting. We all have our manifesting lists. That was the time of the secret. <laughs> and so I thought, all right, let's just put out what I want. And I was like, I want to live with meditators. I want to live with people who are musical. I want to live with people who are conscious and awake. Um, I want to live uh, near the ocean. All of these different things. And then I did nothing because I was like, okay, I have an effortless technique. Let's practice effortlessness, right? Not making things happen. And let's putting things, letting things go out and letting them go. Mm. So you have intention, but letting go, which was tough, right? Because we all have intentions, but we have a hard time letting go. Attached. Uh, we're attached. And the attachment is what inhibits us from the creation of it. Mm. And so I let it go. And I was having really strong, powerful um, meditations that were guiding me. Um, meditations with cognitions. So things that were coming to me about the future. Um, and I had one in particular that came through uh, one day, and it was about Tom Knowles. And Tom Knowles and I had become very close friends in the three, four years that I had been meditating. And I had this meditation where... Uh, it was guiding me to him. And I wrote him an email and I had just simply put out there um, in the simplest way that I had a meditation. I have, I'm, I'm switching everything in my life. I don't really know what's going to happen in the next few months. But what came to me is I feel like maybe I'm supposed to help nanny your children because he has a lot of children. And maybe I'm supposed to become a meditation teacher maybe I'm supposed to come to Flagstaff, Arizona, which at the time living in LA, I totally didn't want to go to Flagstaff, Arizona. But I thought, okay, I'm following divine will. I'm not following human will. My human will wanted to stay in LA and create something new and um, do what I was doing. And so nature basically uprooted me. It uprooted me and it moved me to Flagstaff. It moved me to Flagstaff and... Tom and I got together and I spent the next six, seven years um, living with Tom, being a part of his life um, as a householder. We had a child together, which I never would have anticipated, uh, which is a whole other story. But I traveled the world essentially with my guru. I went to India. I started traveling to India every year. Um, I traveled all over internationally, sitting in all of his lectures, his workshops. Um, and I did that for six or seven years. Mm. Uh, and India, India was an, ex an interesting experience for me. When I first went to India, which was now seven, eight years ago. I did not like it. I did not like it at all. Um, <laughs> I'll admit that now. I was pregnant at the time. It was a challenge. I was in my first oh, semester. I showed up doing panchakarma, which I had no idea what that was about, which is this deep, purifying experience um, on the body level of Ayurveda. Uh, where you go in and you do treatments with massage and herbs and um, you really have a sattvic, which is a pure diet. 
And I did that while I was pregnant and mm. really released a lot and didn't, didn't quite understand what was happening at the time. In retrospect, mm. I laugh and it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and went into India and I just thought, what is this place? It smells. It's... <sighs> I don't know if I can eat Indian food every day. I was trying to find anything like American pasta. I just, I really was like, and I thought, oh my God, it's so, the, what I was witnessing, Tom had a, um, a retreat that was about a hundred people in Rishikesh. And what I was witnessing was the profound energy, right? India has the land itself. The minute that you land in it, it supports your evolution, and what that means is it helps you move through your karma. Mm. And it could be not pretty or it could be pretty. It just depends on how you process it. Mm. And so what I saw was that the vibrations, especially up in Rishikesh, it's the, it's the, the heart and the foundation of where yoga was, was born, essentially. Um, the vibration that you just walk, you speak, and you're creating in the very moment everything that's happening. If you have resistance against monkeys and you're telling a story about the monkeys and that you have a fear about it, it literally starts to unfold in that very moment. And so what I found was that people were really being in, being moved through their karma pretty rapidly. And I thought, I, I'm not going to talk. I don't want to talk. I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch everybody go through their stuff, whether they realize it, whether they're conscious of it or not. Um, but I'm not speaking. I'm not creating any, any turmoil. And I sat back and I watched. I watched. I witnessed how profound and powerful India it is. Um, I found it to be, at that time, the hardest place in the world to meditate. It's loud. It's uh, hard to go deep. Um, as a meditator, um, in the beginning, when you don't understand meditations, you don't like thoughts, right? Everybody says, I can't meditate because I'm thinking. And thoughts are a part of meditation. They're one of, um, they're very essential to meditation. And in the sense of allowing for you to release what you need to release, we have to purify the mind. And when you step into India, you really purify mm. the mind, just releasing, releasing. And so it can be frustrating. It can be frustrating as a meditator, even though we're supposed to be neutral minded. We're supposed to approach all meditations um, with that neutral attitude that all meditations are good meditations. There's no bad meditation just bad interpretation. I think that's something that always resonated with me from your teachings. There's no bad meditation. Yeah. It's so easy to be like, oh, yeah, my mind. I think, I think that's one of um, the special things about the format of Vedic meditation mm. is that it is really made for a householder, people who are living a life, yeah. people um, who are of the world. Uh, we're not here to be monks. We're right. here to, what we like to say is establish being and really perform action. We're here not to be rigid. Spirituality and being the essence of yourself, 
being authentic has nothing to do with being rigid. Mm. So why would we do it in our practice? Mm. So it makes it really approachable and understanding what thoughts are, understanding what's happening to the body of the unstressing, um, how to use a mantra in an effortless way so that the mind is working naturally. I think that the word unstressing is so attractive. Mm-hmm. To me, at least, because I've lived a life of anxiety yeah, for the most part. And, uh, you know, this like very high, fast pace, go, go, go is so exhausting. And, and I have a lot of fun with it. But at the same time, there's a there's a clarity that comes with the mm-hmm. sit and with the sense of uh, de-stressing our, our conditions. Yeah. How do you how do you allow like the 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 format of this meditation, which is uh, a little bit we'll talk about lineage in a mm-hmm. few moments. I'd like to, mm-hmm. but how do you allow the meditation to be a little more accessible in the ways to someone who is just like I cannot sit, mm, like myself and you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think because there's science that's behind it, it's just logical. And so because people from, before you come into meditation, we're intellectualizing the process. And so when it's been proven through science, it's a little bit easier for those to have that understanding. Mm. Um, At least that was my entry point. Um, That 20 minutes is definitely, it's the minimum. This is why we call it intro to meditation. And so it's, it's, it's when Maharishi did this, he took years to form it. It wasn't just 20 minutes. He figured out this is what householders can do, and this is the minimum. And so, because he made a structure that it's twice a day, once in the morning, when you wake up, whenever that is, your schedules are all different. And then, once in the evening, sometime, you know, after you've digested your lunch and before you eat dinner, just plug that in. Find those times, right? And then how we use the mantra, that we come from a place of all-inclusiveness. Like you had said, nothing's bad. It felt so relieving to step into a space, and I find it really relieving to give this to my students, that nothing's bad. Mm. And to really start to bring that into your life, that the, the simplest things, it's okay that our entire practice is research, right? Life is about research and then what? Refinement. We're not here to be perfect. It's okay to have imperfection. And so when we're able to approach it, our practice from that perspective of if it doesn't go ideally, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. You know why? Because there's another one that you get to do this afternoon or there's another one that you get to do in the morning. If you miss one, it's okay. You don't have to wait till Monday or next month or the new year or anything like that. You just start again. Mm. Okay, great. I missed my evening meditation. I go to my morning meditation. Um, we're not rigid about the time. We know that the structure is 20 minutes, but if by chance we dive deep and we pull out at 17 minutes, that was your meditation. You just finished them. Um, And I think that the freedom allows people the comfort. Mm. Um, On another level, 
we don't have to wear any special clothes. We don't have to have a special chair or a special room, even though that's all nice. Mm -hmm. If we do want a really cool meditation chair or we want this really great incense or a beautiful candle, that's all great. But we're not defined by it. And I, f I find, because our human nature wants liberation, right? We want freedom and we naturally want to roam. Mm. Naturally, physically, we want to roam, and naturally, in our minds, we want to roam. And because we honor that perspective from Vedic meditation, it gives people this tremendous relief. Oh my God, okay, my mind can wander off. Oh my God, I can, I can daydream. You know, we got in trouble for daydreaming when we were students in school. We were told that that was wrong. We got in trouble for laughing in class. We got in trouble over and over for all of these different things. We got in trouble if we needed a break just to go and look out the window. And <laughs> finally, there's a practice that comes along that says all of these things are good. And mind you, you're not going to get up and look out the window when you're meditating what i'm saying as a metaphor is when you're in meditation we're not controlling we're not focusing we're not forcing anything to happen we're not taking our human will intention and then saying this is what i'm going to do for my meditation mm -hmm. instead what we're going to do is remove ourselves in the sense of i'm just going to simply sit back and observe and watch the pra the process unfold mm. Right? I'm going to allow for nature to come in and start doing everything. And I'm going to start allowing for myself to align to that. I'm going to allow for myself there's no resistance. And so a lot of the things that the teachers are saying from Vedic meditation are extremely comforting. Mm. We don't resist anything. Everything is all okay. This is all inclusive. We're here to... Let the mind have the sound and vibration, which is so powerful. The world started with sound, mm -hmm. right? And so we use sound and vibration, and then we allow for our minds to have thoughts. We're not resisting them. We allow for everything to be a part of it. And when we're practicing these multiple little microcosms of lessons, they start to they start to expand into the macro. Right? So when we're learning, oh, I'm not resisting. I'm not resisting in my practice every day. That allows for us to stop resisting life. Stop resisting what you want. Stop resisting what you love. Just stop. That's all people are doing is resisting. Resisting love. But I so badly want love. And we go into the practice of all-inclusiveness. Everything's okay. So then you can go and start to be in life and oh my God, everything's okay. This thing right here doesn't look so good, but it's just moving me in the direction of something mm. that's great. Mm. Okay, I see that. I'm okay with that. So we start practicing on all these levels, all inclusiveness. Everything is good. That means the person in the room that you find really annoying, everything is good. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to go sit and suffer with them, but it's okay. They're in the space that they need to be in know your boundaries you can share space you can invite everyone into the space it's all okay we're all on our journey we're all having these moments um but coming from that perspective of stress you know we're purpose-built machines 
our bodies are meant to take on stress. Um, but if we don't know how to alleviate ourselves by simply pausing, mm -hmm. then it gets the best of us and our stress starts to own us and our mind becomes our master and we're not the master of our minds. And that's the difference. We're mastered by our thoughts. We're mastered by our triggers. We're mastered by our stress. And we want to be on the other side. We want to be the masters of it all. Mm. You know, we hear so often what meditation is. Mm -hmm. This may be an interesting question. What is meditation not? Mm. Interesting. Mm. From my perspective. Meditation, um, well, I mean, we have to define what it is that we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so meditation itself, I mean, we could be talking about two different things. So meditation, the word itself, means to sit and contemplate upon thought. <laughs> right? But when I'm talking about Vedic meditation, I'm actually talking about transcendence to transcend and this is a big distinction um, between I think what's what's kind of out there right now um, so to transcend means to go beyond limit and what is our limit as a human being it's thought right and so Vedic meditation instead of contemplating upon thought we're not doing that we're not actually meditating we're transcending and so it's the art of transcendence. We're learning and teaching our minds and our bodies to go beyond limit. Again, what is our limit? Thought. And so using the sound and vibration to go beyond thought, it allows for us to go to where? Right? Because when we're sitting and we're contemplating, right? We're contemplating upon thought, though this is a good practice as well. It's, it doesn't allow for us to go as deep. Um, you might have points where you let go and you do go deep. So all is possible. But when we're sitting and contemplating upon thought, that has control, right? And nothing about transcendence or going beyond thought has control, right? It's kind of like asana. There's a certain point where the body just moves itself. When you can get into the place where the prana mm -hmm. moves you, mm -hmm. That's the place you want to be in, mm -hmm. not us forcing mm -hmm. through muscle. That's, that's effort, right? And so when we come from this place of effortlessness, nothing about transcendence or pure consciousness going into this transcendental state. And when, when we go beyond thought, right, prior to, let's back up a little bit. So when we close our eyes and we sit into meditation, we pick up mantra or we're focused on breath or maybe we're focused on an affirmation, an intention, whatever it is that you've decided to do or visualization, right? There's a place of effort happening, even if you're using mantra, right? Because you're just now sitting down and the body's used to effort. It's used to all of this stuff. And so what happens is the mind starts to relax, right? The mind starts to relax and it starts to... It starts to de-excite itself. And so on every level, when somebody closes their eyes and they're meditating, right, some sort of contemplation in the beginning, they're starting to de-excite mind. They're starting to de-excite 
body, right? So the body's starting to de-excite on a level that it can start to go into deep rest, mm. right? And this is where the body begins to rejuvenate. It starts to replenish because it's resting, right? It's pausing finally. Mm. So it can start to release these things that we call distress or stress. Distress is the beginning of what stress is. So these are things like headaches and stomach aches and irritability and impatience and all of these other things, right? That's distress. And that starts to release, right? We all get impatient in the beginning of our meditation practice. <sighs> you know, that's releasing, right? It's letting go. And so we're sitting in the space of the body de-exciting and the mind de-exciting. Now, if you're taught to transcend, which you are in Vedic meditation, there's a point where you're able to literally go beyond thought. All of a sudden, thoughts gone, mantras gone, thoughts are gone, right? And this is the place that all yogis and all great masters are talking about. Mind you, there's a lot of depth to this but as an intro when we dip beyond thought we dip into a place of pure consciousness mm. this is our natural state this is the source of all being right some people might call it the unified field some people might call it the mystery some people uh, might call it uh, the source of creative intelligence um you know, there's many names for it, but we'll stick with pure consciousness. And in this place where there's no thought that we finally get to, and in the very beginning, we usually go, yes, I'm there. And then that's a thought and it pulls us out. <laughs> but when we're able to strengthen our practice and the duration of us going into no thought, pure consciousness starts to expand. We start to experience what we call supreme inner contentedness. Mm. And what does that mean? Supreme inner contentedness, I like to say, is I'm happy for no damn reason. Right? It's not attached to anything. We're finally experiencing bliss, happiness, love. These things that are our truest nature, who we really are. And so as we begin to practice on these multiple levels of benefits, we start to practice having less thoughts, right? Because a human being who's not practicing meditation regularly is thinking 50 to 60,000 thoughts per day, 90% of them recycled. Um, so we're filtering out less thoughts, less irrelevant thoughts, so that more creativity, more clarity, more intuition, all of these great things start to come through. We're letting go of old stresses on emotional level, on mental level, on physical level, and we're starting to connect on a deeper level our spirit, right? Our spirit is essentially our truest essence. So we're starting to experience that. And then we're going down and we're experiencing this pure consciousness going beyond thought and we're allowing for ourselves to really saturate into this bliss. And this is where our practice starts to expand. Um, we start to realize that, what all the masters have been saying for years and years and years, thousands thousands mm. of years, that happiness, everything is within you. It's all there, mm. right? And you start to actually experience that. Not intellectualize it, but experience it. And this is the practice that I find to be the need of the time. 
it's great to release stress. It's great to calm the mind. It's great to replenish the body. It's great to reverse our aging. Mm. It's great to do all of these things, make a sustainable body. But at the end of the day, what we want to learn is that all answers are within us. All knowledge is structured within consciousness, right? All that pure consciousness, that that bliss is sitting there waiting for us to connect more and more so that it goes from inside and it starts to seep out into the outside, into our world. That's the practice that we want. Mm. Stabilization and integration. Mm. Wow. I feel that finding that state of bliss and that state of effortlessness Mm -hmm. is um, not easy. It takes practice yes <laughs> right it takes years and years and years of practice and that's fine because why we have years and years of life i mean my perspective was when i was 26 i was like all right sweet game on five to seven years to completely unstress my body of everything prior so all 26 years i can unstress in five to seven years I would do kundalini at that time too. And so I went to this women's kundalini camp in New Mexico and I asked all the advanced meditators there and I thought, how long did it take you to feel good and stabilized every day? And they said, oh, about 10 years. (laughs) And I thought, okay, five to seven years, 10 years, okay, this is a practice. And I was 26 and I thought, all right, if it's 10 years and that's my journey, then I have 36 and on to be in this place of feeling like literally feeling bliss, literally living in a place where I'm not cluttered with irrelevant thinking. Um, and I'm able to start to tap into my human potential. I'm able to start to tap into what my purpose is, which we all want. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, practice makes perfect, right? Not Mm -hmm. that it's about being perfect, but getting to that place of being simple, being natural, being innocent, allowing for effortlessness to happen because all of this knowledge, this beautiful knowledge that comes from India, all sources from the Veda, right? And what does Veda mean? It means knowledge. And what's the knowledge? It means bringing in human consciousness and aligning it with the laws of nature. It's not a religion. It's just simply teaching us how to be a human being, Mm. right? And that's the beauty of it. And so every day we get a practice how to be a human being. Mm. Every day we get a practice being more effortless. Mm. Every day we get a practice not resisting. Every day we get a practice feeling bliss and love, Mm. truly. Mm. Not intellectualizing. Nobody ever became enlightened from reading a book, ever. I can guarantee it. You can research it. So it takes experience, which then takes practice. What is it that you find so valuable about upholding lineage and tradition of yoga? Mm. I find, I mean, what I love is that this, there's a science to it. There's a logic to it. And it's all been laid out for us thousands of years ago. And there's these branches of yoga that you can awaken to along your path. Each person awakens to it in different points, right? And what's beautiful about the yogic path is that everyone has a different temperament. 
And so all the branches of yoga apply or attract people of different temperaments. Some mm. people are bhakti, and some people purely go off of satsang, right? Kyan, wisdom. Some people love hatha, the movement, right? Some people pranayam. Um, some mm. people need mixture, right? Some people are all about seva, right? Giving service. And this is what opens their soul and their heart. And at some point, they may open up all to you. Mm. Um, there's different points that all of us need to feed. Maybe we need satsang, we need kyan, we need the knowledge. We need to sit and we need to, we need to read, we need to hear, we need to saturate ourselves with that. Some of us um, get attracted to the tian samadhi right the the meditation the transcendence we want to go beyond so then the information starts to activate and it starts to become alive it starts to make sense right and then there's points where oh, i need to give i need to give myself uh, the selfless action of giving the seva or some people just really need to go out and do this bhakti go sing dance mm. feel it come through the body and so there's this beauty of um, so much of the Veda coming to you in different ways and really activating through, um, there's architecture, there's the holistic approach of Ayurveda, where there's a point on your journey where your meditation practice, your asana practice is doing things and it's stabilizing, but there's a certain point where our chemistry needs to be balanced, Right? And we're creating chemistry on the inside of the body when we're doing these things. We're creating neurotransmitters that are helping us start to balance within our brain. But sometimes we need a little help. Mm. And so then we have Ayurveda. We can go, we can take herbs that can start to balance out our chemistry so that we start to feel good. Um, I think lineage is really important in the sense of having purity, having knowledge, having guru. I think it's really important to have guru. And what do I mean by that? In America, we have this thing. We like titles. <laughs> we love titles. And guru has kind of been made into this generic title. You can be like the guru of fitness. And you can be the guru of this. And we kind of have lost meaning, right? Language is so important to understand meaning. And guru essentially is the word when broken down means the expeller of ignorance, the expeller of darkness. Mm. And so when you choose somebody, yeah, we have this perception of guru being this high, high status, but essentially it's somebody there that's, that is able to guide you from your darkness and ignorance to shed light and bring that to you. And it's, it's so important that we have that guidance, yeah. whether it's in asana, whether it's in meditation, it's essential to have somebody guide you because there's profound experiences that happen. Um, that people need to have understandings. There's things that you can't see in the moment because you're stuck in your vrittis, which are your triggers. You're stuck in your story um, and you can't move on. And what I find with lineage is this beautiful, there's ritual, there's tradition, there's um, 
information that has been handed down from master to master to master with such Mm. great care of integrity, Mm. of purity, of um, simply just having the heart and the devotion to want to uplift humanity. Mm. And I think that's essential for people to be able to go back and have history History is important. History is important to know so that we don't repeat. We don't repeat, we refine. Mm. And as we go through the lineage of different different techniques, uh, we can see the refinement of how it's come along. But there's this thread of purity that stayed, this innocence, this um, knowledge that's withstood the test of time you know I find great um, ease in knowing that I didn't make up this meditation (laughs) that when I step into a room to give an intro talk about Vedic meditation it has nothing to do with my individuality it has everything to do about the universality about connecting to the masters that came before me to really giving the knowledge of um, this universal wisdom of integration of life it has nothing to do with my ego, and that's what I find um, lineage to be so important. It doesn't have to do with ego; nice. it has to do with the universality. Every great master was saying the same thing. Mm. They're all saying the same thing. They just have a different interpretation. Why? Mm-hmm. Because everybody climbs the mountain a little bit different. Everybody has a path to the mountain that they climbed up and they have a way of telling you how they did it mm-hmm. and they want to offer that to you and that's essentially what each lineage has done ah pranayam this this is what worked for me and this is my journey in it kriya yoga this was my journey in it this is how i became awakened and how i stabilized and how i integrated mm. uh, mantra meditation this is what worked for me a siddha, a hatha, all of these different ones. It's everyone's journey of how they became awakened and how they figured out how to be a human being, how they established being and how they're performing action, essentially. Mm. That's beautiful. May we all wake up. Yeah, may we all, may we be lucky enough to have the deserving power to simply just say yes. Yes. Just a few more questions, Shoda. What are the first steps to cultivating a mindfulness practice? A mindfulness practice? I mean, what would your definition of mindfulness be? I think that's a great question. Mindfulness, you know, um, observation observing how we show up in the world, how we, how our own words, our presence, our actions influence others, people in the room, Stra- people, not, I don't want to call them strangers, but just people as we're passing by, how we show up to them and how, if we're mindful of that, like how, what's, for someone who this may be a completely foreign concept, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people who are not versed in any, offerings of yoga in their life for those people how do they how do we start out 
in a mindfulness practice? What does that look like? I think people need to go with what they're attracted to. Nice. Um, that That's the beginning of just being natural, whether it's a book. Mm. right? They start with a book. There's so many amazing books that are written um, that whoever that voice is that really speaks to you to um, start to get you to have some sort of practice, whether it's the power of intention that would be by Wayne Dyer um, or books from Marianne Williamson. Um, Maybe the course of miracles you find really attractive and you start reading it and there's exercises to apply, things that you can start to apply. Um, Usually we're going to start moving in the direction of intellect, right? And so books are good to start bringing that in. there's little small practices of just simply going outside and allowing for yourself, giving yourself a little bit of time to start to connect to nature. Mm-hmm. Maybe you take, even if it's 10 minutes, right? You take a break from work You before you get in your car and you leave work that you allow for yourself to have 10 minutes just to go sit, sit in nature. Don't even close your eyes. Look, mm. look around you (laughs) and start observing as an observer what's that like breathe the air start to fill the elements the space where where you are in a city or the country you start to connect to the wind you start to feel the sun and the heat from the sun or if it's cold what that feels like on the body you start to connect to subtlety Mm. Um, and that can be a really simple practice what my breath feels like what it feels like for the the inhale my chest rising and it falling right just feeling these simple things and remembering um what we are what we're capable of Mm. a lot of times in the beginning i always like to tell people when you basically lift your head up out of your life right you go oh my god there's something else (laughs) um watch a sunrise Mm. watch the sunset do it every day. Do it Do it for a week. See if you can keep that going. Choose one. Choose both. And remember, start to connect. Oh my God, there's something greater happening than just this. Right? And so we can do those things. We can start to wake up. We can do a gratitude list. We can sit down and write if we're feeling despair, like everything's wrong in my life and how do I ever begin? Just start thinking of all the things that you're grateful for and mm. write them down. Look at it every day. Mm. Look at how it shifts. Look at the themes. When you start to see the themes of what you're grateful for, that's going to show you the interests that you have and start moving towards that. Mm. Maybe start to, what are the things that you've been talking about for years you've been wanting to do? Is it a dance class? Mm. Do you want to learn guitar? Do you want to go hiking more? And then do it. Mm. Just start making it happen, right? Mm. And not with a lot of pressure. You don't have to put a regimen Mm -hmm. that is going to have you fail. You want something that's a win-win, right? Mm. So you're you're connecting on those levels. Maybe try some new things of going to an asana practice. I'm going to try this yoga studio that I've been attracted to and feel the fear. Feel Mm. the fear and do it anyway because at the end of the day, when we sit in our comfort zone, 
nothing good happens in that. (laughs) Only ever do good things start to happen when we step out of our comfort zone. Mm. And so go, go do a yin class, go do um, just an easy vinyasa flow where they play really cool music and you get to feel like you're dancing through the music. Um, uh, Try these different things um, that your soul's been telling you to do. Go for walks. Get your children involved. Go Mm. look at the pond. Um, What it's like to go play again. Mm. Paint. Do, you know, go color. Get those coloring books that are out for adults that are super (laughs) cool and start coloring. Do playful things so Mm. that your mind starts to go at ease and you start to remember what it's like to be more playful. Mm. And then know you'll move in the direction maybe you'll be attracted to go try a sit down meditation practice maybe there's a sound healing that sounds really great you're going to go to and experience that or a breath circle of breath work um just try try different things experiment and see what calls to you Mm. try retreats you know people like to go to retreats workshops um there's all kinds of things happening out there that we can immerse ourselves in. But I always say start simple and don't put too much pressure on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a beautiful golden nugget to take away for our listeners to step back into the playfulness. It's so easy to get caught in day-to-day grind. Yeah. And as you go through that, then things start to grow. As you, you know, you're sitting in the park and you're looking at people and you start observing you know, someone's really stressed or they're yelling at somebody or some guy's got schizophrenia, I don't know, and you look at them and just think, what must it be like to be them? Hmm. Rather than judging. Yeah. You just, what is that like? What is that like to be them? I don't know. Maybe maybe that person who's really stressed out and yelled at me, they just found out their mother has cancer. Yeah. Who knows? We just have to step into this place of feeling. Hmm. Feeling, you know, step out of our stuff and it, Think what it must be like to be somebody else for just a second. That's a good mindful practice. And the more and more we start to feed that, and it's like watering the root of the tree, and the tree starts to grow, and then the tree starts to have fruits, Mm. and more and more starts to happen. Then you'll start to attract the things that you need in your life, and you'll stop resisting, (laughs) and you'll start saying yes more rather than no. Mm. and mindfulness will start to be more of a natural way of being you know you start to find more compassion more love you know we're not perfect we'll still have moments of anger and frustration and whatnot and then we have to get good at not beating ourselves up over over that just because you're a yogi or a rishi doesn't mean you don't yell or get mad or have moments of you know everything falling apart yeah, we have humanity. It happens. Mm. Just how resilient are you? And how much can you get up and, and keep moving? How much staying power do you have? Mm. So nice. it's, the mindful practice can be little, small, easy, simple. Mm. Thank you, Yashoda. My pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day and revealing to us the, the, the beauty of meditation as it has found you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. We are so grateful to transmit the knowledge of Yashoda to you on today's episode of Yoga Revealed. We hope it leaves you with inspiration to take your practice to further levels of interest. 
you can attend a free one-hour lecture with Yashoda in Boulder, Colorado. Visit her website at yashodadevima.com to find out when her next free talk is. She hosts them quite frequently throughout town. Thank you for tuning in today, Yoga Revealers. If you haven't yet, please visit yogarevealed.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay connected with us. Find out what events, special programs we are creating for you, and fun yogi happenings Yoga Revealed will be at this summer. Wherever you are in the world, may you be blessed and receive all the love you deserve. This is Alec Rubin, sending love from my heart to yours. Namaste. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.